put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. It's the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. What is it about this crazy mass of metal tubing that makes us laugh, cry, want to flat out quit at times, and then keep coming back for more? My name is James Newcomb, and I am thrilled to host this show that brings on world-famous, not-famous, and everything-in-between trumpeters to share what keeps the trumpet blowing and the music flowing. It's the Trumpet Dynamics Podcast, and it begins now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Trumpet Dynamics. This is James Newcomb coming into your earballs, and I have the pleasure of bringing on to the show today a fellow James, James Blackwell. We can find on the web at blackwellstrumpetbasics.com. It's plural, blackwellstrumpetbasics.com. What can we say about Mr. Blackwell? He's been a member of Bill Holman's big band, the Claire Fisher big band. He went to school at the University of North Texas, recorded several albums with the famed One O'Clock Lab Band, where he played lead trumpet on a couple of them. And he's been around, and now he's got the scars to prove it, and he's going to share it with us in today's episode. So welcome, James Blackwell. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. I want to get the skinny on this book that we were chewing the fat a little bit about. It's the... Lead Trumpet Transcriptions from Terry Gibbs' Dream Band. Now, this is cool because this is what I love about podcasts or hosting a podcast is I'm always exposed to new bands and new uh, things. And I'd never heard of Terry Gibbs' Dream Band. So can you Mm -hmm. give us a little bit of background on it? Sure. Um, Well, the the albums were first introduced to me by my uh, lead trumpet instructor at the University of North Texas, a guy named Jay Saunders, along with all the trumpet stuff that we worked on together. He was very knowledgeable about the recording history of like every band ever, it seemed, basically. And, uh, and one of the things that we did in lessons was we would study the playing styles of certain lead players. And the three players that we focused on during that time were uh, Conrad Gazzo, who I think is probably most famous um, as the lead trumpet player for Frank Sinatra's albums uh, recorded at Capitol Records. Um, Al Porcino was a... Well, he was kind of East Coast and West Coast, but he was most well known for recording these albums with the Dream Band. Um, and he played like in the uh, Village Vanguard Orchestra uh, for a little while, as, as well as recorded with um, Stan Kenton. I think he's playing lead on the Contemporary Concepts album. He's also playing lead trumpet on the Basie album with Frank. It might just be called Hello, Dolly, something like that. Yes. And then the third guy, who oh, was Snooky Young, um, who was, you know, uh, Jimmy Lunsford, uh, Count Basie, Vanguard Band. Um, so he, he introduced us all to a lot of the albums that these three guys recorded as sort of like the quintessential lead trumpet players in a jazz style. And the big thing with Al was recording with the Terry Gibbs Dream Band, which was a jazz band in uh, Hollywood, California. And like I said, I think it was between 1959 and 1961. They recorded a bunch of live performances um, 
had a couple of different clubs out there. One of the clubs changed names. It's like the summit or some, something like that. It changed to the sundown or vice versa, something like that. But it featured a lot of the great writers from the time, like Bill Holman and Bob Brookmeyer. Um, but anyways, yeah. So over the, the period of three years, they recorded um, all their live sets. And then they kind of took the best tracks and released them as a series of albums. They put out six albums during the time. And Al Porcino is playing lead on most of them. Uh, another lead trumpeter, Johnny Audino, he was the lead trumpeter for the Tonight Show Band uh, with Johnny Carson. And uh, he's playing lead on one of the albums. And then another of the albums is Split. And there's some other, there's some other stuff. Uh, Ray Triscari is playing a little bit. But it's kind of like Al's... Um, I don't know if you would say it's his greatest contribution to to the uh, you know jazz big band recordings, but definitely a big chunk of it. So they are really awesome albums, super swinging, and Al sounds amazing. So what we used to do in lessons was we would transcribe these parts, kind of like doing a jazz uh, solo transcription. And then the idea there was that by listening to the music, listening to how they were played, and then actually writing out the charts yourself rather than getting the charts to look at. Um, you could make stronger mental connections between the written page and the interpretation. I've studied copywriting a little bit, and the way that you learn copywriting is to just, how you learn it is you just write down by hand the copy that other people have written, great copywriters in the past. And, and you just kind of learn it by, I don't know if it's by osmosis, but you just it it's just has a way of ingraining into your mind in a way that just reading a book about it can't do it. Yeah. So that was kind of like, um, I, I want to say I started the project a couple of years ago, but when I sat down to do it, it was just as a way for me to kind of work on my lead playing. Uh, I had just moved to Pennsylvania and I wasn't playing a whole lot. So I wanted to, you know, stay connected to the music and kind of keep my lead trumpet brain cranking away. So that's what I did. I just sat down and, and wrote them all out. And then, you know, I realized I had 70 some charts or so. So I had a good friend of mine uh, edit them and he gave me some suggestions for the actual uh, engraving of it in finale. And then I just released them all as a book. So it's essentially like a lead trumpet excerpt book. Like all the, like if you bought a book of like all of Mahler's first trumpet parts or whatever, these are all the first trumpet parts of the charts that the band recorded during that time. Wow. That's quite a project. And not, not just the value of, of learning to play lead trumpet, but just the history in it yeah it's just totally that's really cool man yeah it was it was it was a lot of fun to do i mean it was a lot of work you know it took a lot of time it took a lot of time but um but it was fun and and one of the best things about it was that now i can kind of just flip open to any page of the book and look at a measure of it and then all of a sudden i've got the whole you know the whole band playing behind me in my head because i've listened to these charts so many times now but back in the day way before i ever sat down and transcribed any of these I was just in love with the band, so I listened to the albums all the time. So it was it was really cool to come back to them. I don't know, fifteen years later, and uh, and re-listen. How, how has this project been received by other players? Uh, the people have got it. I think you know they love it. I think that everyone's just kind of enjoyed it, especially during the pandemic. That was the kind of the big thing was that uh, everybody was missing playing with their bands. You know, I had a slew of people pick up the book and got some emails back from them, just saying that they were having fun jamming along to you know to these great albums i'm glad that we have you on the call because i i always like to pick the brains of legit lead trumpet players because there's the, and, and i was just talking with chris gecker uh mm-hmm. last week and we were talking about I, I think what the appeal of someone who plays in the extreme upper register is that even to a novice 
person who no, doesn't know anything about trumpet, like just a complete layperson, can look at someone doing what someone like you is doing and just say, wow, you, it's almost to the point where you're like, this person could potentially hurt themselves doing this. And it's just kind of a bit of a thrill. This is how he worded it. It's just a bit of a thrill for anyone, whether you know anything about it or not, because you know this is a little bit dangerous. For me, it's always just, um, you know, I've never been like a real screamer, kind of a high note, um, double C type of lead player. So for me, it's always just been about like, I love jazz. You know, what I listen to the most is uh, straight ahead, hard bop kind of, quintet playing, you know, anything from a duet, like a horn and a bass, you know, up to like a sextet or septet or something. Um, So for me, the lead trumpet thing was never really, I mean, I love high notes as much as, you know, the next player. Um, But for me, it was more about the jazz side of it and just, and just hearing somebody play in the upper register with the same kind of feeling as an improviser would in the staff. So for me, it's been more about like the sound and the feel than the actual like guts and glory of it. The sound and the feel. I'm not sure I totally understand that. One of the reasons that I love, I mean, I'm sure that uh, other styles of music have this as well, but one of the reasons I love jazz players is because the sound isn't necessarily the most resonant sound or something. It's not judged by that so much as just like the character of the person playing the instrument. I've always loved people's sounds. And then, and what I mean by the feel is uh, like the time feel and where they're placing the notes and which notes are longer, which notes are shorter, which notes are slightly louder, you know, the way that they're shading the phrase basically or building the phrase note by note. Um, that to me has been the most kind of exciting part of lead trumpet players in general. And my favorite players are the ones that you can tell are playing very deliberately. What do you mean by deliberately? Just like every note is preconceived. Like they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Like they're playing the chart, like they're reciting something. Um, So I think that a lot of people get wrapped up in the physical part of lead trumpet playing and just getting the notes out, blasting away like that. But I've always kind of enjoyed the players that were, that had the facility to play the notes the way they wanted to play them rather than just play them. I understand that. Yes. Yeah. That makes that yeah. makes a lot of sense. So they're playing it with authority and they're not just yeah. like, "Oh my god, I hope I hit this ho- yeah, I, totally. I hope I hit this note." But it's like they know they're going to hit it. They know they they've got it. Yeah, so the facility is kind of like serving the musicality more than having the facility as like a form of excitement, I guess you could say. Well, there's a lot of things that we could talk about with uh lead trumpet playing. And I know that offline we, you discussed some of the physical issues that you encountered from it but i want to get to like the very beginning tell us about your start what got you interested in in trumpet in the first place um when i was uh in fifth grade i lived up in massachusetts and that's when they started band students and my mom had like read some article in the newspaper or something that uh if your children were in band it made them smarter Right. So she had this rule for all of us <laughs> where uh, me and my uh, two sisters, we had like this family requirement that we had to play in the band for two years. And then after that, we could just kind of do whatever we wanted. So whatever it was, the year before third grade um, was when you picked your instrument. And at the time, I wanted to play the tenor saxophone. And but that was like the most popular instrument. So they said, OK, well, not everybody can play the sax. So if you're serious about it, then you have to start on the clarinet. 
Um, so I signed up to play the clarinet, but then we ended up moving and I, you know, I went to the next school and walked up to the band director and said, Hey, I want to be in the band. And he said, what do you want to play? And just kind of off the cuff for no reason whatsoever. I was like, I don't know. What's that one over there with the three valves. I'll play that one. So that was it. Uh, so I got the trumpet and I played it. And for whatever reason, I think I was naturally like a pretty good sight reader. So even though I didn't have really that good of, um, a fundamental start to my trumpet playing. I always got good playing opportunities because I just could do the reading. So like when I was in fifth grade, after I've been playing for a little while, the director let me play in the jazz band with like the seventh graders kind of deal. Um, so it's, it's pretty funny. There's pictures like all the, all the kids in the band are like two feet taller than me. You know what I mean? I'm like this little fifth grader off on the side. And I just always enjoyed playing in the jazz bands felt more natural to me for whatever reason. And uh, so even though I did band and the classical ensembles and all that stuff up through high school, it was always about the jazz band for me. That's kind of like why I did everything else was so that I could play in the jazz bands. So I did that all through middle school, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Um, and then I moved to Texas, had some awesome band directors there. This guy, Jimmy Cook and Brian Casey. And they uh, were super encouraging to all of the students. Again, they let me play in the jazz band there. Uh, they had two two different bands and I played in the first one my first year and then got moved up to the next one uh, my second year and then when I was in the um, the top band there our teacher uh, Jim Cook he was a North Texas alumni so he played in the lab bands at North Texas and he kind of was always sort of encouraging me to go there and study music and we would do a lot of he would every rehearsal we would start out by start reading a chart you know so he was throwing a lot of Thad Jones and some pretty complex stuff at us just to get us comfortable sight reading all the time. Um, but, you know, I still had a lot of problems with my just straight up fundamental trumpet playing. I wasn't really sure about being a music major. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this yeah. is yeah. like your high, your high school years? Yeah, in high school. Yeah, okay. high school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I did. Yeah, I didn't decide to go to school for music until like the very end of my senior year. And even then I signed up for school undeclared and just started playing in bands. So I wasn't like a great classical player. Um, and even the idea of becoming a jazz major, I didn't feel totally comfortable with that uh, because I wasn't improvising. <clears throat> Those are the first playing opportunities that I had where I was the first trumpet player and like everyone to my left and to my right, also teenagers, but were really great improvisers. And that was kind of when I first felt like, oh, I have a role in this community. Um, so even though I'm not a, uh, an improviser, you know, I can stand next to these players and, uh, you know, playing my part and do the first trumpet thing, be a jazz player doing that. Yeah. So then I decided to go up to North Texas. And uh, while I was there, I studied with Jay Saunders, whom I mentioned. He just exposed me to so much music and, and really just taught me how to play what I would call like professional lead trumpet playing versus like meathead lead trumpet playing. You know, you got to play up to high G's and stuff, but you have to do it in a way that's musical and that serves the ensemble and the writer more than your ego. We were just playing a ton when I was in North Texas. I was doing anywhere from like four to eight big band rehearsals a week. And if you were in a lab band, you played four days a week. And if you ever had to miss a rehearsal, you had to get a sub, especially the first like four years or so that I was there. I just subbed for whoever I could, because in the beginning, it was a way for me to get into the higher bands because the people in the higher bands would need a sub out. You know, if I was always available and saying yes, then I, you know, I started meeting all the kind of top players in the school and meeting the different professors and whatnot. And then also playing on the weekend, I did a lot of Latin gigs back then, as well as um, some other big band gigs in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The Latin thing, we were playing like four nights a week, 
So just playing all the time, just like total like chop shredding, you know. And when you're that age, you're, you, it doesn't occur to you that this might come back to haunt you someday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can bounce back pretty quick. A little more resilient in your early 20s than your early 40s. Totally. This seems like a, a good segue to, because you mentioned that you have had some physical issues and you had some nerve problems of some sort, a few embouchure changes. I, I guess, I don't know if I have a, a specific question per se, but I was, could you just break down a little bit of the, some of the challenges that you faced physically from your playing? Uh, the first embouchure change I went through was totally self-directed. The reason that I did that was just because I felt like my playing technique, I was having success as a lead player. I kind of had an intuitive sense of how to use the air. Overblowing, trying to muscle out the horn. I have pretty thin lips. So it never even occurred to me that that's something that I could do to make it work. So I really learned from a, a very young age, probably when I was 15 years old or something, I kind of figured out how to use the air in the sense of just like releasing the air and not blowing any harder to go up to higher notes. So I, so I wasn't like muscling the horn in that way. And for whatever reason, I could get it to work. I, have, I was planning on kind of like spread open chops. Um, I didn't have a strong embouchure, so I had to play on dry chops all the time to keep the seal with the mouthpiece, um, but I could make it work. But however, since I was playing with that setup, I was so spread open, I had to play dry. I had a pretty brittle sound in the staff. Just basic skills like articulation were really difficult for me. Like like single tones, you know, just a total mess. I went all through grad school. You know, I was playing in Bill Holman's band at that time as a sub, and I was playing regularly in this writer named Mike Barone's big band. Uh, I became the first trumpet player for him. So it was kind of like a weird thing because I was doing all this playing, but I knew that if I kept going in the direction that I was, that I was never going to play the trumpet in a way that felt satisfying to me. So I, I just kind of, you know, was like, well, I don't know anything about the embouchure at all, but what I do know is that it's uncomfortable the way that I play. I had this kind of double embouchure, which is like more of like basically just a traditional setup. My lips were closer together. Uh, I had more meat in the mouthpiece. It was like what I could play a low C on comfortably. So it's just a more physically comfortable setting. I could play a low C on it. I could barely play out of the staff, uh, but I just decided, well, this is more comfortable. So I'm just going to go with this from now on. Um, so that's what I did the day after grad school. And I called all my band leaders and I, I told them what I was doing. You know, I was like, yo, I'm changing my embouchure. Uh, I can't really play anymore. If you want to kick me out of the band, you know, now's your chance. Uh, but everybody was cool. They, you know, they were like, no, no, just, uh, you know, they've been pro players for so long and had met so many people that had been through similar things that um, everybody was really compassionate, which I, I, for anyone having struggles, that's something I would first say is just like admit it to everybody around you. Um, don't try to keep it a secret because... You know, I don't think you have to be so afraid of loss. I thought I was afraid of losing all my gigs. You know, I think that's the thing that most people fear. But uh, everybody was totally cool about it. I just went for it and I was having a lot of trouble. And I would say in the beginning, I just kind of went for it with little direction. And I was sort of playing again in like a year and a half. But, you know, I was playing better, like my sound was improving. I still didn't know that much about the Amishur mechanics. I was just kind of going at it from uh, the perspective of like, well, I'll get more meat in the mouthpiece and I'll practice slow and hopefully I'll figure it out. Uh, and, you know, that sort of worked out for a little while. And then I, I kept going. I kept getting better. My sound kept improving, so on and so forth. You know, I could was starting to practice more in the lower, lower uh, part of the horn, down into the pedals and whatnot. 
the next thing that I changed was, um, I think it's from like the Jimmy Stamp book, or maybe I got it from the Reinhardt book, was about just having the top and bottom lip lightly touching one another inside the rim of the mouthpiece uh, before you play. So even while you breathe, and then the aperture only opens up when there's air going through it. So that was a big one for me. And that, that only took like a couple of months to get used to doing. And then during that time, so I was getting the lips closer. And then I also lined up the teeth more because I had read the uh, Philip Farkas book. And that book made a lot of sense to me, The Art of Brass Playing, just kind of taking the uh, sort of like a piecemeal approach to the embouchure like you pay attention to your teeth gap. You just practice for a while until that starts to settle itself. Then you pay attention to the lip placement and practice for a while and kind of go through it like one little bit at a time like that. And then things were cool. And then I was like, I felt like I was really playing great. And this was maybe like seven or eight years after I had made that initial change. And even though I was, I was still getting, yeah, it was, it was a, you know, it was a long haul and it was kind of like ups and downs. I was still get getting a lot of uh, inflammation and stuff like that uh, in the chops and, and being real unresponsive, like first thing in the morning and that type of thing. But that's just because I didn't stop the whole time I was making the change. I never stopped any of my professional engagements. I was just kind of making it work. And then when I moved and, and I kind of like relaxed for a while, then all of a sudden everything really started to click for me. Things felt great. Like I could play all over the horn, like down to pedal C and still not like double C's and stuff, but I was practicing up to A's every day above high C going to my gigs and just totally, you know, playing like top 40 gigs and stuff and reckless abandon, you know what I mean? But then I kind of like got a little too excited, I think. I'm sorry to interrupt, but can, can you, can you give us the timeline? Because I know you went from Texas. It was a Texas to Los Angeles. And then yes, to Pennsylvania, yeah. where you are now. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I I moved I moved from Texas in 2009. I lived in Los Angeles for nine years, and then I moved out here in 2018 or something like that. This is the move from LA to Pennsylvania that you're talking about, where you yeah, where yeah. you weren't playing as much, and that's when start, things started to click physically. Yeah, yeah, okay, got yeah. It. Totally. I just had to clarify. So I had like a year of playing that was like my best playing ever, and I was just really pedal to the metal, grinding hard. Um, and then I was started messing around with this, like the Cat Anderson teeth closed. You play with your teeth closed. It's like a form of isometric exercise. I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, but I was basically like that 20 minute G thing. I was only doing five minutes, but playing to like a strong lactic acid burn every day in my face. Um, cause I was still in this mindset that if I could get the, the muscles in that like muzzle area of the face really strong by tearing them down, that that would work. And maybe it does for some people, but it didn't work for me. What I learned a couple of years later after the fact was that apparently you can learn like a neurological fatigue. So if you always play to the point where your chops are totally trashed, then as soon as you go to play your instrument, no matter how long of a rest you've had or what kind of a warm up you've done, your chops are just going to feel like garbage because that's what they think they're supposed to do. Anyway, so it got to a, the point where even at the thought of playing, my face would just burn. And I started to feel like the brunt of playing in my gums, like on the uh, first on the top, one of my top teeth. And then it got to the point where I was feeling on both the top and the bottom teeth, like feeling like even if I was playing in the staff, like I was just playing on my teeth, like there was no cushion. Wow. It was a total disaster. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse until it finally got to this point. I also have like some TMJ kind of symptoms, which I've heard sort of uh, exacerbate the uh, effects of this, but it got to the point where I was feeling like this nerve pain is shooting nerve pain going up through the um, left side of my face into the front lip. And it just felt like 
I don't know how else to describe it. Just kind of like lightning bolts. I just couldn't play. I couldn't play a C in the staff without double buzzing, like at all, ever. And and like I said, always my chops always just felt burning and bad, and and I really didn't want to play uh, at all. Then I but then I came across um, there's this trumpeter Mark Zaus uh, who lives in Florida, and he's a great lead trumpet player. He's an amazing trumpet technician. The guy has incredible, incredible range um, and flexibility. Just play all over the horn like it's nothing. And I found his website and he he was the first person I'd seen that talked about this, where he's got like all these articles and some visualizations of stuff where there's basically some cranial nerve that comes out the front of the face and goes into the top lip. And if it becomes irritated, it can become kind of like habitually irritated. If you keep banging it up over time, what I took from the articles was that you basically do this like simple mouthpiece routine. I don't think the routine really matters so much as how you do it. And the point is you get to where you can play like a low C on the mouthpiece um, and hold it out soft. And the whole time you're doing it, you relax your shoulders. You're, You're learning how to play the low C with just the passive release of air while you actively relax your shoulders. And the whole point of it is that you're, you're kind of retraining your trumpet neural network, I guess you could call it to relate to the instrument in a relaxed way and for the muscles to just be and to just be calm and to not go into that like stress response at the thought of playing. Uh, so I, so I literally thought like, all right, I'll, I'll give this 90 days and uh, you know, if it doesn't work, I'm going to change careers or something. Uh, so, so I went out to the park every morning and did this little mouthpiece routine and that was it. You know, it was crazy because the whole time I did it, I had a lot of trouble playing on the mouthpiece and focusing on the mouthpiece in that way with the swollen chops and all that stuff and the, and the burning and, and blah, blah, blah. And it was still fairly uncomfortable, but I kept just coming back to this idea of like, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. And I swear to God, like it, for me, it was like 99 days. I woke up and all of a sudden my chops felt just as good as they ever had. Just like, boom, in an instant. The stupid thing is that I did this and then I was like, oh, this is awesome. I'm cured. You know, so I started going back to like just playing however I wanted to. And I went back into the overuse thing again. Like I felt like a small little twinge in my lip and then boom, the next day, like my playing was trashed again. And then I, so then I went through the the process again and it worked again. So now basically like if I'm ever going to play the trumpet, this is how I'm doing it, you know, for the rest of my life. And it's just that thing where I, I, the way I explain it to people, it's like the low C is like a mantra. And so the more you do it, the more powerful it becomes as a practice, the deeper it goes into your you know, physiology. So, and I think that a lot of people do this um, in different ways. Like some people blow the lead pipe, you know, like an easy note on the lead pipe or just like a, a long tone, starting the day with a long tone or something like that. But just having some part of your practice that you come back to with that idea of, you know, no matter how much we have to dance around the horn or do all this crazy technical stuff or play at different dynamics or whatnot, if you can always come back to something to remind yourself of the very basic feeling of ease in playing, the, it kind of like starts to meld with your regular trumpet playing. So I tell people it takes, you know, the three months of practice, it takes three months to believe it's going to work. And then once you believe that it's working, then you keep doing it and it becomes uh, more effective over time. Um, I read this book called uh, Rewire the other day. I was talking about this kind of coincidentally. And there's a quote in that book is neurons that fire together or wire together. So if you always remind yourself that it can be easy, even if you don't consciously believe it at the time, but you just kind of keep reminding yourself, keep reminding yourself, then the neurons 
wire together and it becomes easier. And, and I would have never like really bought into it had I not just totally destroyed my playing over time, basically. So the very thought of playing trumpet would make you like, physically feel? Uh, explain that again, because you said like the thought of just the thought of playing, you would feel a burning sensation in your lips? Yeah. Yeah. Like wow. if I just reached my hand out and touched the trumpet, my lips would start to burn. Wow. Yeah. And like my, and I had this one tooth on the front that would kind of like throb a little bit. That is fascinating how the physicality intertwines with the mental and the, uh, or the, the, uh, the, the neurological aspects because it's, it's all interconnected. And totally. uh, you learned the hard way. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> to be that, fair, you know, I'm not trying to scare anyone. And, and to be fair, I mean, it was like, it was literally like, I'm talking like 25 years of, just hard, hard playing, you know, that kind of led to that point. So most people will never even come close to that, I don't think. But it's still, uh, I feel like, sage advice to, you know, always aim for that feeling of ease and just a certain degree of psychological relaxation, you know, while you're practicing. My day job is to edit podcasts, and I have a, several uh, clients in the health and fitness industry. Just what you were talking about with the physicality of trumpet playing, the the advice that I've heard so many times from my clients and their guests is, if you go to failure, muscle failure, then you're a failure. And I, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was like if you if you leave the the uh, the workout going to muscle failure, you don't want to leave the workout on a failing yeah. note. And I thought that makes a lot of sense. You yeah. want to leave some gas in the tank, so to speak, physically. Yeah, totally. So what would you say to someone who's like 25 years old and they're a hotshot trumpet player and they're, they, th they feel invincible, they think they're never going to die, their chops are always going to be there? What advice would you give to someone uh, to avoid something similar? I mean, that's the thing is that I feel like really dedicating to this type of thing in practice is usually the result of some kind of an injury. Um, and especially you mentioned athletes and, and whatnot. Uh, it seems like the people that are the most hip to this thing are the ones that have gotten screwed up somewhere along the way. But, uh, you know, I always just kind of like make some basic recommendations. Like don't be afraid to take time off from playing. I think just that alone can help because it's really like playing on tired chops too much that leads to problems. And just kind of remember that, like if, some, if someone were to listen to this, just kind of like remember the story maybe in case you do end up in trouble because then you've got a strategy for, for getting out of it. You know, it's just kind of this back to the stuff that Jay taught us in school when we were doing the lead trumpet thing all the time. Uh, his whole deal was you basically learn how to play what you can play without excessive mouthpiece pressure and without excessive blowing and to just always, and that's how you warm up every day. So we would do these little exercises like, yeah, stuff like that, just intervallic things. And the whole idea was that you were just doing it with the steady release of the air. And then learning how to make the adjustments in pitch without forcing anything, I guess I, you could say. On the bandstand, you know, there's a certain amount of physicality involved. Uh, but when you're practicing the Shoebrook book, I like the beginning Shoebrook, Shoebrook book. It says, all forcing is wrong. I think that's a pretty good, pretty good little quote, uh, especially in the practice room, for sure. All forcing is wrong? That's what he said. Yeah, that's what it says in the... Uh, have you ever forcing. played out of those books? No, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, just the idea that when you're practicing, I think the m most beneficial thing you can focus on for this kind of stuff is efficient tone production, making it feel easy. 
even if it doesn't sound that good all the time, you know, but really coming at it from the perspective of ease. This is related, but it's what, what you were mentioning with the uh, the working out thing. There's this guy named Jersey Gregoric, Gregoric. I'm not sure how to say his last name. Are you familiar with him? Never heard of him. Okay, yeah, he's like, uh, gosh, I, I don't even know. I think he's maybe Polish or something. I can't remember, but he's a uh, like a retired Olympic lifter, and he has this program called the Happy Body, and it's all about maintaining flexibility and longevity in your body as you get older and his the whole training philosophy is revolves around basically a, a single move and the move is a squat with an overhead press at the bottom so you like squat down and then you press the dumbbells overhead and when you can maintain uh when you can get full flexibility like get your butt the whole way to the ground and keep your spine straight and press the dumbbells overhead then it just like keeps like your whole body basically in really good working order. And the program to get there is you basically just do that move every single day and you only go as far as you can go without any type of strain whatsoever, just easily and with perfect form. So when you first, so somebody who's uh, pretty, you know, who doesn't have a lot of flexibility, he has like examples of people that um, had gotten like spinal fusions and been in uh accidents and broken their backs and, and this kind of thing. So when you first start out, like some people can only go down like an inch before their back starts to arch. So that's what you do. You just do that every day. You just go down that inch. And then when that becomes easy, you know, you add another quarter of an inch and you know, if you do it every day, it takes like three years or something, but you'll reach full flexibility and it'll never be work. And I think the trumpet playing can really be like that too. You can you can really apply that same mentality. Um, and then this last, like, for example, this last time that I came out of the overuse thing, I always sort of operated with this belief that everything came systematically in incremental gains, I guess you could say. Um, but the, but the most recent, I say it was an embouchure change, but it was really just kind of like learning how to play again. It, the progress didn't come like that. It just, it kind of came in like quantum leaps. Like I couldn't play anything, but I kept doing everything right. Kept doing everything right. Then one day a high C came out, kept doing everything right, kept doing everything right. Then one day the G came out. I think that, that the process orientation is uh, way more important than trying to like add notes on some timetable. You know what I mean? I, I completely understand. Yeah. And a uh, chiropractor that I once uh, visited uh, years and years and years ago, he used a phrase to describe fixing a, a crooked back. And it stuck mm -hmm. with me all these years in that it's a process, not an event. Mm -hmm. Just the way he said that has always stuck with me. And I've used that so many times in so many situations because there's so many things. And if there's one thing that that applies to, it's trumpet playing because totally. you, don't, you don't just wake up. But like you said, you did, that, you did that, uh, that one routine for 99 days and then like the 99th day, just yeah, it's like a 99-day snap of the fingers. And all of a sudden it was just, it was like yeah. one day it was not quite where it should be but then the next day it was it seemed like it was perfect but it's just a process everything is a process with with this business we've talked a lot about your experiences and some of the hard lessons that you've learned but i just want to know when you're just starting and trumpet is like everything that you do it's mm -hmm. it's your everything but then when you get a little older your priorities your perspectives your just your brain just comes into full formation mm -hmm. and your priorities change 
Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to know how has the, the role of the trumpet changed in your life from your younger days to now? Like, what is the priority? How, how has it changed in your perspective? Well, now I have a family. I have a three-year-old and a, and a one-year-old. Um, and, you know, I'm busy with them. Um, I've kind of also gotten into some different hobbies. Like I like, uh, gardening and farming is something that I would kind of like to do more of if I had a little more space. Um, but a big part of my kind of growing up as a trumpet player, I sort of took a hard look in the mirror at myself. Like when I was in the early days of being in LA, there's kind of like this, I don't know what, what you would say it is like, uh, it's sort of like the rat race, I guess the status quo, you know, is to be able to do everything and be everywhere and be on everything. And I just sort of realized that I wasn't happy living that freelance kind of a lifestyle. For me, a big transition into becoming a more fulfilled musician and trumpet player was to just start saying no to everything and just only playing the bands that I wanted to play in. And just from where I was coming from, for me, it's always it's always been the jazz bands. And that's something that I've kind of like realized is so deep a part of me is that, you know, musically speaking, that's the experience that I want. Um, is to be is to be able to play in bands like that. So I really just focused on that and then to make ends meet. Um you know, I started leaning a little bit more heavily on teaching, I guess, which is something also that I've always really loved to do. Um I love getting people started on the trumpet. I have a lot of students that are adults that are just starting out. For me, the the thing with the embouchure change and all the research and all that, it kind of like quenched a thirst for like a fundamental knowledge of what I was doing, kind of learning the elements and the fundamentals of playing and tone production. That's something that I really like to pass on to other people as well. I'm not so much concerned with like being the guy, you know what I mean? Being like the person uh, with all the gigs so much as just, you know, having some meaningful opportunities to play and being able to share a love of playing with other people. And then also just to have time to pursue other things and kind of letting go of, you know, I think everyone that goes to school, there's like some sort of desire to be the best. So sort of letting go of that and just playing more or less for fun when I feel like it and working on the things that I want to work on and letting it be more of like a uh, enriching part of life rather than something that I feel like I have to do. Very well said. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, folks, this is uh, James Newcomb and I've been on the, we've had James Blackwell on the call. So... Thank you all for listening in, and definitely check him out on the web at blackwellstrumpetbasics.com. And he's got this dream band, the lead uh, trumpet parts the from the Terry Gibbs Dream Band, volumes one through six. So if you're a lead trumpet player, or if you fancy yourself a lead trumpet player, this uh, was definitely up your alley. So check him out. James, I really appreciate you sharing things from your own history that may be a little bit, uh, may, maybe make you feel a little bit exposed, a little bit vulnerable, but uh, you've, you've uh, acquitted yourself impeccably. You come to it with a, a place of just humility and you just took your licks and now you're moving forward. I just really appreciate the transparency that you showed in this interview. and I learned a lot. Thanks for being on the show, man. Of course. Thank you very much, James. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for pressing play on today's episode. Make sure you press that little subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already, so you'll never miss an episode when they publish. And if you want to dive deeper, you can visit me on the web at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com, where you'll find ways to connect with me via social media and even a customized mobile app. 
that has a plethora of material I think you'll find interesting. Again, that's jamesnewcomontrumpet.com. This is James Newcomb signing off.